an otaku, as defined by Merriam-Webster Dictionary, is, quote, a person having an intense or obsessive interest, especially in the fields of anime and manga. For Satoma Miyazaki, his life was defined by exclusion and isolation, starting from the time he was a child in elementary school. Due to a deformity in his hands and wrists, Miyazaki was ostracized by his peers and slowly went from being a straight-A student at the top of his class to a quiet loner just scraping by, graduating by the skin of his teeth. Having no friends at all, Miyazaki turned to the world of anime and manga for company. His obsession slowly grew, and as he got older, his obsession with anime and manga became an obsession with pornography. And when that was no longer enough for him, Miyazaki turned to child pornography, falling down a deep dark hole of depravity that he would never escape from. Instead, Miyazaki found himself at home with this depravity, and by the time he was 26 years old, Miyazaki would cross the line from virtual perversions to real-life heinous crime. Known as the otaku murderer and his crimes as the little girl murders, Satoma Miyazaki brutally murdered, raped, and desecrated the bodies of four young girls during the short period between August of 1988 and June of 1989. The case of Satoma Miyazaki is one of murder, pedophilia, necrophilia, and cannibalism, and you better believe that this shit really happened. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to This Shit Really Happened, the true crime podcast, where we deep dive into the most disturbing, depraved, and downright gruesome crimes that humans ever committed. I am your host, Em, and as always, I am here to tell you this story of another very depraved, very gruesome case that I have researched for you guys. If this is your first time here, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for giving this uh, little podcast a try. And if this is not your first time here, if you are a returning listener, thank you so much for coming back. I know it's been a little while since I have posted an episode. Um, I have honestly had the research done for this one for so long, for like, gosh, maybe over a month now, but you know, things got busy in real life with Christmas and New Year's. You know, the holiday season is crazy for everyone. It was crazy busy for me, you know, with just personal life and with work. So I didn't really get a chance to sit down and record this episode, even though I had all the research done for it for the longest time. Now I was just itching for a chance to sit down and do this. Um, I typically record when I am alone in the apartment. I just feel kind of odd sitting here and talking to myself and talking into a microphone if anybody else is around in the apartment um like it's it's bad enough that my downstairs neighbor is here and she can probably hear me and she's probably wondering like what is wrong with this person who is living up in the apartment above me why is she spending all this time talking about these really horrible brutal cases to herself like I probably freak my poor neighbor out downstairs enough. So, you know, I try to wait till I'm alone in the apartment to do these sorts of things. So, you know, it makes it a little less weird for me to just sit and talk into a microphone and record a case and talk about the case for, you know, you all to listen to on 
I know I am here by myself. I'm fly solo on this thing. So, you know, I apologize. It's been such a long time since I've been able to get an episode out, but boy, do I have a case for you all today. I really hope this one makes up for my absence. Um, Let me tell you guys, this one is rough. I had heard about this case prior to actually getting in and researching it. I only knew vague details of things. I had never really gotten into, you know, the profile of the victims before and exactly what was done to them, what um, the subject or I guess the, uh, I feel weird kind of calling the perpetrator the subject of the case because I really, you know, don't want to bring any sort of, um, like romanticism to this person or any attention to this person. But really, I mean, it is someone we're talking about. The subject of the case is, um, like I mentioned in the trailer, it's Sutomo Miyazaki. Um, he was a Japanese serial killer and his victim of choice for young girls. Um, and I mean, really young girls. I believe his youngest victim was four and his eldest victim was seven. So, you know, just kind of take that as with a grain of salt as to what this case is going to deal with. As I mentioned in the trailer, there is a lot of really kind of um, messed up things that happen in the case, you know, pedophilia, cannibalism, necrophilia. So this is this is a pretty heavy one. I, I came back after this little hiatus with a case that, you know, is definitely going to be packing a punch here. So, you know, if this is not something that you think you want to stick around for, I do apologize. I know the subject matter is very, very heavy, and I understand if this is not a case you want to take the time to listen to. Um, But if you do want to listen to this case, you know, I hope you guys are happy with what I've presented, and it makes up for the time that I have taken off. Um... Like I always do at the beginning of every case, uh, trigger warning on this case. This case contains graphic descriptions of child murder, pedophilia, necrophilia, and cannibalism. So again, if you don't want to stick around for this one, if you'd rather wait until the next case gets posted or the next episode, I should say, gets posted, totally understand. Feel free to click away if you do not want to listen to this case. But if you are here with me for the long haul on this one, I will go ahead and get started. So as per usual, I just want to start off giving a little bit of a biography on Satomo Miyazaki. So Miyazaki was born on August 21st, 1962 in Itsukaichi, Tokyo, and he was the eldest son of a wealthy family. He was actually born premature, and he suffered from a rare birth defect that caused his hand joints to be fused together, so this prevented him from being able to have full range of motion in his wrists. So specifically, he wasn't really able to bend his wrists upwards. Um, If you Google Sutomi Miyazaki's name, um, a photo does come up of these hands. It's like a black and white photo of hands. Um, And a lot of people have claimed that that is a photo of Sutomo Miyazaki's hands, but it was disproven that those hands were, uh, it was a photo of somebody else's hands from like a medical textbook. um, And they weren't actually Sutomo Miyazaki's hands. So if you were to look up this case, you would probably see that photograph. But um, I was going to include them in the photos that I, I put up on Instagram. But after I did a little bit more deep diving, I found out that they're, again, not actually his hands. 
So I'm not going to include that photo, but he did have that deformity in his hands that again prevented him from having full range of motion in his wrists and, and mainly prevented him from being able to bend his wrists upwards. Um, like I mentioned, Miyazaki was born into a wealthy family. Um, his family actually operated a regional newspaper company, and they were very well known in Itsukaichi, where Miyazaki was born. Um, his grandfather and his great-grandfather actually served on the town council in Itsukaichi. Um, with the business, with the newspaper business, his parents were very busy. So uh, Miyazaki, he was actually mainly raised by his grandfather and a disabled man that the family had hired as a nanny. So he didn't really have much interaction with his parents. He had a very just kind of basic, like almost like acquaintance-like relationship with his parents, which seems weird to say, you know, you think you would have a little more familial relationship with them. But again, they were very busy with this newspaper business they had. So Miyazaki was not close with his parents, but he was very, very close to his grandfather and the nanny who helped raise him. Um, because Miyazaki did have this deformity in his hands, sadly, he was ostracized when he was younger. He was very... Um, withdrawn into himself and we all know that kids can be really mean so you know I I don't feel any sort of sympathy for the adult Sutomo Miyazaki I grew up to be but you know I think we can feel a little bit of sympathy for the child that he was and when he went through when he was young so you know he started attending elementary school and you know, due to the deformity, he did receive, you know, some some bullying from his peers. He was definitely ostracized by them. So he did really keep to himself. He was definitely a loner all through high school or elementary school, I should say, and that led into high school. So he attended um, Medai Nakano High School in Nakano, which is a prestigious high school that was actually associated with Meiji University. So this was a very prestigious university in Tokyo. Uh, Miyazaki, he was actually a star student for a lot of his academic career. Um, but soon or during his senior year, I believe it was, that was actually when his grades began to drop dramatically. So um, by the time it was getting close to him to graduate, um, he went from being one of like the top students in his class to being ranked number 40 out of 56. So he did not end up receiving any sort of scholarships or any admissions to the schools of his choice. So the one that he wanted to go to most out of everything was Meiji University. Um, it's unknown exactly what caused his grades to drop, but it was speculated and a kind of evidence in things like that go to show that his grades dropping had a lot to do with the things that were going on in his home life. So he had a lot of issues that were, you know, not school related, but they were affecting him personally. And, and that's a pretty, you know, thought to be what had caused his grades to drop so severely. Um, he had formerly had dreams of studying English. He wanted to become a teacher, 
but because of the drop in the grades, he again didn't get into Meiji University like he wanted to. So instead, he attended a local junior college and he studied to become a photography technician. Um, This will actually become relevant a little bit later when we get more into the details of his victims and the crimes he committed. So in college, Miyazaki, his loner status only intensified. So, I mean, he was used to being kind of by himself again as a result of the ostracization, wow, words, the ostracization that he faced from his classmates through elementary school and through high school. So when he got into college, that didn't really change. Um, He would keep to himself and he would spend a lot, a lot of time, like an obnoxious amount of time, just pouring over pornographic magazines. And he was, you know, as he got older, like I said, I have no sympathy for the adult that he grew into because he, for lack of a better word, he was a absolute pervert. He was just disgusting adult, like sympathy for him as a child, but absolutely not any sympathy for this man as an adult. He was horrendous. He was known to actually take upskirt photos of local women who would go and play tennis at a uh, tennis court that was near the university he attended. Um, While he was getting involved in doing like these upskirt photos, getting really deep into pornography. That is when he got really deep into um, anime and manga as well. And this is where the moniker of the otaku killer was given to him actually came from, was because he was known, again, to have this huge obsession with anime and with manga. Um, However, the child, or the child, oh my gosh, words, the pornography obsession he had, that soon didn't really do it for him. He uh, kind of was looking to sate these urges that he had and, you know, these these sexual fetishes that he had with adult pornography. And at a certain point, that just did not work for him. It wasn't, like, scandalous enough. It wasn't dirty enough. Um, it wasn't taboo enough. So uh, he has mentioned before, you know, this is how we have this information, that around 1984, that is when he actually began to seek out child pornography. Um, in Japan, there are a lot of obscenity laws, and one of the specific obscenity laws, um, it actually... Uh, demands the censorship of pubic hair and not of the sex organs themselves. So what is seen a lot of the time in adult pornography in Japan is that they're, you know, it's it's blurred out. The pubic hair is is censored. And what Miyazaki had figured out is basically if there's no pubic hair to censor out, then nothing is censored. Um, there is actually a quote from Miyazaki that he had said after he was arrested um, that he turned to child pornography in lieu of adult pornographic magazines and videos because um, he said that the adult magazines, quote, blacked out the most important part. So basically, he wasn't seeing what he wanted to see with the adult pornography, so he figured, you know, hey, if there's not any 
pubic hair that's going to be blurred out because of these obscenity laws, then, you know, I'm going to be able to see all the things that I want to see. And how do I view porn where the actors don't have any hair? Um, child pornography, basically. That was his, that was his logic here. And that's what really caused the switch from the regular pornography into the uh, child pornography. So in the mid-1980s, Miyazaki actually ended up moving back into his parents' house in Itsukaichi, and he shared a room with his elder sister. Uh, Miyazaki's father wanted him to take over the family business, but like we talked about a little earlier, Miyazaki didn't really have a relationship with his parents. He felt no really like love. There was no love loss between Miyazaki and his parents. So he really had no interest in taking over the family business because he was already so absorbed in what he was doing, you know, with with anime and manga and with pornography. And he basically was like, why am I going to do a favor for my father and take over this business when he had nothing to do with me when I was growing up, and basically he didn't want to leave his porn and his anime and his manga to work in a professional setting in the way that his father wanted him to. So, you know, he basically told his dad, no, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to take over the business. Um, he really felt that he had just been rejected by his family. So, Again, he was raised by his grandfather for the most part, his grandfather and a nanny that they had hired him. Um, and he really felt, Miyazaki really felt that his grandfather was the only person who ever actually truly cared for him. Um, and sadly, in May of 1988, Miyazaki's grandfather actually um, passed away. So this was really kind of for Miyazaki, the straw that broke the camel's back. So he has no relationship with his parents, with his siblings, and now the only person Miyazaki felt that had ever really given a shit about him, he died. And Miyazaki felt that he was alone. He had no one. So this just caused to deepen Miyazaki's depression, and he isolated himself even further. Um, and he would actually later confess that on an attempt to, quote, retain something from his grandfather, Miyazaki had actually ate part of his grandfather's ashes. So his grandfather's body was cremated. You know, it was put in an urn or whatever it is that contains the remains. And Miyazaki had actually, um, like I said, eaten a bit of those ashes of his grandfather's remains to try to, as he said, keep a part of his grandfather close to him. I, I guess that's like in a very morbid way. I, I guess that's kind of... I don't know what I'm trying to say. It was going to say wholesome, but that's not the right word for this at all. I don't think there's anything about eating human remains that is wholesome, but I don't know what I'm trying to say. But basically, Miyazaki was so upset by his grandfather's passing, so upset by losing the only person he felt really cared about him, that he was so desperate to, you know, keep a part of his grandfather with him that he decided the best way to do that was to eat his grandfather's ashes. So, you know, that just that kind of gives a little bit of an insight as to what is going on in, in the brain of this man. So... Moving on from that, um, a few weeks after his grandfather had passed away, he actually, Miyazaki got into an altercation with one of his sisters. So he had been watching his sister shower and his sister had caught him. And when she confronted him about watching 
her shower, um, she basically just yelled at him to get out. It was probably like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, get out, you nasty pervert. Um, he actually physically assaulted her. You know, he's the fucking pervert that is watching his sister shower, and he has the goddamn audacity to get mad at her and assault her when she calls him out for being a fucking pervert and watching her shower. And then when Miyazaki's mother found out that he had been watching his sister shower, she scolded Miyazaki and told him that he had to spend more time working and less time watching his quote-unquote videotapes, which was probably, you know, anime or porn. He got mad at his mother, and he physically attacked her, too. So... Again, this is in 1988. This is in, again, May of 1988. So Miyazaki's murders began in August of 1988. So he is reaching his tipping point here. Up to this point, the only, he hadn't really ever been physically violent with people before he had attacked his sister and attacked his mother. So that just gives you a bit of an insight as to what is going on in his head and the deep spiral downwards he's having after his grandfather passes away. So grandfather passes away again in May of 1988. And in August of 1988, that is when Miyazaki commits his first murder. So it's not specifically known again what caused the shift in Miyazaki from quiet loner to child killing cannibal. Um, But again, it's been theorized, like I said, that it was the death of his grandfather that triggered the change and triggered this violence in Sutoma Miyazaki. So by the time he began committing his crimes, he had actually moved out of his parents' home and he was living in a small two-bedroom apartment. And he had also been regularly consuming child pornography at this time as well. And it was on August 22nd, 1988. This was actually one day after his 26th birthday. Sutoma Miyazaki would go on to commit the first of the four brutal murders that would earn him his infamy and his moniker of the otaku murderer. Um, His first victim was four-year-old Mary Kano, whom Miyazaki had snatched while she was playing outside of a friend's house. Um, So... Again, Marikano, she was playing outside of a friend's house. Miyazaki's whole MO for obtaining his victims or kidnapping his victims, he would pretty much just drive along in his car. And if he saw a little girl that he felt that he could basically just snatch up without anybody noticing, he would pull his car over, he would grab her, and he would you know, or maybe not always grab her. He would either like snatch them off the street or as we'll see in a bit of a couple of the other victims cases, he would convince them to get into his car with him. And then he would drive them somewhere else where he would then commit the subsequent crime. So in the case of Mari Kano, um, she was just playing outside of her friend's house and he snatched her, pulled her into the car um, and took her with him. After her parents noticed that she was missing, um, or sorry, not Mari's parents, the parents of Mari's friend, after they noticed that Mari was missing, they actually attempted to go out and look for her. Um, when they were unable to find her, that's when they went ahead and called the police. Um, meanwhile, Miyazaki had lured Mari to his black Nissan Langley. That was the vehicle that he drove. Um, and after he got her inside, he began to drive towards Tokyo. Um, so he drove for a little ways before he ended up parking the car under a bridge in a heavily wooded area that was just west of the main city of Tokyo. 
He actually sat in the car with Mari for about half an hour. While he was sitting in the car, he was just talking to her. You know, they were having a bit of a conversation, you know, whatever sort of conversation a 26-year-old man could have with a four-year-old girl, who knows. But again, this went on for about 30 minutes that he was just sitting here and he was talking with Mari. Um, After this 30 minutes, I don't know if something just snapped in him or if he made a conscious decision, but after this 30 minutes he spent speaking with Mari, um, he murdered her via manual strangulation. Um, After strangling Mari to death, um, so he... Oh, God, this is this is so terrible. It's so hard for so hard for me to say. Um, but after he strangled her, um, he he ended up stripping her body and then he proceeded to molest and rape her corpse. I think thinking about this poor four-year-old girl and the fact that he killed her by strangling her to death, the fact that he would have had to wrap his hands around this poor little girl's small little neck and look at her the entire time he was killing her, the fact that he, like, what sick motherfucker can do that what sort of sick sick person can look into the face of a little girl of a baby she was four years old and do this to her and then not only that but just defile her body after the fact it wasn't bad enough for him that he had murdered her he had to further desecrate her body after the fact the sick motherfucker this guy was um so, uh, um, like I said, this bastard was sick. It, uh, just saying these things give, gives me the chills. Uh, it's so hard. Um, so after Miyazaki had molested and raped Mari's corpse, he ended up just stripping her body naked again, and he dumped her, just dumped the body in the woods and drove away. Um, and over the next few weeks, he would actually return to the scene of the crime to visit Mari's body. Um, he would, again, rape the corpse. He would just sit there and look at her, touch her dead body. And he eventually went even further into the desecration of this poor baby's corpse by cutting off her hands and feet. And he took them with him. He took her hands and feet as a trophy of what he had done. And if that wasn't enough for this sick motherfucker, he also got off on torturing Mari's poor, poor family. He would actually call them, and when they answered, he just breathed heavily into the phone. Didn't say a damn word, just breathed. And he would call them over and over and over again, hundreds of times a day. You know, if they didn't answer, he would just call again and call again and call again until they answered. And then he would just breathe into the phone. Like, what sort of sick person gets off that sort of psychological torture? This family has just lost their four year old child. And he is getting his rocks off by calling the family and just psychologically torturing them. And he didn't just stop there. Oh, no. He didn't just stop there. 
Weeks after Mari's murder, Miyazaki actually sent her parents a box containing a photo of the outfit Mari had been wearing when she was murdered, because, you know, this sick motherfucker liked to take trophies. He took her clothes with him. He took her hands and her feet. So he took a photo of the outfit she was wearing, put that in the box. Um, Several small teeth, several of Mari's teeth were in that box and a postcard that had a handwritten message on it that translated read, Mari cremated bones, investigate, prove. So he is off the goddamn walls. We knew that before, but this just cements it. He is an absolute sicko. So he is just murdered a four-year-old girl. Not enough for him to get off on going to continue to see the body and taking trophies of her to keep to himself. He has to psychologically torture the girl's family as well. Um, a little over a month after the murder of Mari Kano, Miyazaki would end up abducting another little girl on October 3rd, 1988. Um, this time, the victim was seven-year-old Masami Yoshizawa. Miyazaki was actually driving along a rural road when he first spotted Masami. So she was just walking along the road. He spots her. He slows down beside her and he basically offers her a ride, which Masami, who was, you know, she was seven years old. I probably hasn't really ever, you know, given too much thought about, you know, stranger danger and don't get into a strange person's car. And I mean, looking at pictures of Sutomo Miyazaki, he does look very unassuming. So it's not hard to believe that, you know, Masami being seven years old, being a child, being probably very trusting of adults, he offers her a ride, you know, who knows how long she's been walking for, but he offers her a ride and she accepts his offer. So she hops into his car um, Miyazaki then begins to drive Masami out to the same location where he had murdered Mari. Um, unlike Mari, or yes, unlike Mari, he didn't take any time to speak with Masami the way he had with Mari before he murdered her. Um, so he murders Masami in the same fashion that he had killed Mari, which was via manual strangulation. So also in the same fashion as he had done with Mari, um, he strips Masami's body naked. He rapes her corpse and then he dumps her naked body in the woods very close to where he had dumped Mari Kano's body. Um, he also took Masami's clothes with him when he left. And just like Mari's parents did, um... Or hold on, let me backtrack. Yeah, no, he didn't send Mari's family a box like he had sent, or sorry, he didn't send Masami's family a box like he did with Mari, but he did do the same kind of MO where he was ringing their phone, heavy breathing, but he didn't go as far with Masami's family as he did with Mari's family. But at this point in the community, panic is starting to set in. This is the second little girl who is gone missing in a few months so people are beginning to panic um so after masami's disappearance um this is actually when miyazaki who of course at this time his identity is unknown they just know some sicko is kidnapping girls um this is when they dubbed him um the otaku murderer 
and they called his crimes the little girl murder. So this is when the media starts referring to him as the otaku murderer. Of course, at this point, they don't know what sort of obsession Miyazaki has with like anime and manga. Of course, they don't know who he is yet. So that is not relevant to the moniker that they give him. Um, but it was due to the fact that he was abducting little girls, little school girls. Um, and that is a common, if you've ever seen, you know, uh, Japanese anime and Japanese manga, young girls, young school girls are often the subjects in a lot of those animes and a lot of those mangas. So that is initially where the uh, moniker, the otaku murderer, had come from when the Japanese media started dubbing Miyazaki with that before they ever knew his identity. So if we fast forward a couple weeks later, we are now at December 12th, 1988, and this is when Tsutomu Miyazaki strikes again and takes his third victim. The victim this time was four-year-old Erika Namba. Like Masami had been, Erika was also abducted while she was walking home alongside a rural road. Um, however, unlike Masami, who Miyazaki had basically offered a ride home to and she accepted, Erika was a lot more reluctant to get into Miyazaki's vehicle. So he ended up having to force her into the backseat of his car, where he then also forced her to take all of her clothes off. Um, Miyazaki differed in his usual MO this time. Usually he would drive off to a like remote location somewhere he knew he wouldn't be found, um, but maybe it was because Erica was struggling. He knew he didn't have time to drive her all the way out to this wooded location uh, west of Tokyo that he had driven Mari and driven Masami to. So he took Erica to a parking lot in Niguri, which is close to where he had snatched her again, instead of her driving all, instead of driving her all the way out to the remote location where he had taken Mari and Masami. So after he had forced Erica to strip her clothing off, he ended up taking photos of her on his Polaroid camera. So this is something he did a lot. Again, remember when we talked a little bit about his backstory, he had gone to school to study photography. So he had a lot of like Polaroid cameras, film cameras that he would have with him when he abducted these girls, and he would take a multitude of photos of them. So that is what he did with Erica. Again, he took photos of her on his Polaroid camera. And once he had gotten the photos he wanted, Miyazaki murdered Erica again via manual strangulation. Um, I couldn't find any sources as to whether Miyazaki also sexually abused Erica after she was deceased, but... I feel that maybe, maybe, this is just my brain going, maybe he felt that he didn't have enough time to spend with Erica, like as much as he had to spend with Mari's body and with Masami's body because he wasn't in this wooded location that he had been for the first two murders. So, you know, perhaps that is why he felt that he just didn't have the time to spend with Erica's corpse as he did with the other two victims. So what he ended up doing after Erica was dead, he tied her wrists and ankles, then he took her body from the backseat of his car and he shoved it into his trunk where he covered it with a bed sheet. 
He then drove Erica's body to another abandoned parking lot and he dumped it there. Um, and then he, after that, drove to a wooded area where he ended up dumping Erica's clothes. Um, and Erica's body was discovered in that parking lot three days later. Um, so it was actually Erica's parents that received a mysterious note like Mari's parents had had a few days following Erica's um, disappearance and the discovery of her body. So there was no box. Um, it was just a note that Erica's parents received. And the note to Mari's parents was handwritten, but the note to Erica's parents was, it was pieced together with clippings from a magazine, kind of like you'd see in like old school ransom notes, you know, where you cut out the individual letters to form the words that you want. And the translation of the note that Erica's parents received said, quote, Erica, cold, cough, throat, rest, death. Erica's murder was Miyazaki's penultimate crime, and it was his final act of violence that would be the most disturbing of all. Miyazaki's fourth and final victim was five-year-old Ayako Nomoto. Miyazaki abducted Ayako on June 6, 1989. Um, he had somehow convinced Ayako to let him take pictures of her, and then he lured her into his vehicle. Once he had her inside his car, Miyazaki again strangled Ayako to death. Um, and this is actually where the final murder begins to differ from the others. So instead of immediately finding somewhere to dump Ayako's body, Miyazaki actually decided to take her body home with him. At home is where Miyazaki then spent two days raping her corpse, photographing it, and masturbating over it. He also used this time to slowly dismember her body, during which he would stop to drink Ayako's blood, as well as eat her hands and her feet. So not only was he desecrating her body by sexually abusing it after the fact, um, he is now delving into cannibalism and eating pieces of her body as he dismembers her. Um, as soon as Aiko's body began to decompose, Miyazaki took the dismembered pieces and he actually scattered them in various locations around Tokyo. So he had hidden or thrown some, strewn some in public parks. Um, there were a few left in cemeteries and he even had stashed or hidden some in a public restrooms. Um, he did end up getting a little bit antsy, though. You know, at this point, um, like Erica's body has been discovered. The police and the public are on high alert. So he's getting anxious. He's getting very nervous that the dismembered pieces of Aiko's body are going to be discovered and that they're somehow going to be traced back to him. So a few days after he had dumped the dismembered pieces of the body, he actually returned to all the locations and he collected all the parts that he had dumped. Um, he then took the dismembered body back to his apartment, where he ended up stashing it inside of one of his closets. Um, so while Miyazaki was continuing this streak of heinous crime, the police were hard at work attempting to identify the person who was abducting and murdering these innocent little girls. Um, Mari Kano's remains were actually identified right from the box that Miyazaki had sent to her parents. Again, the teeth that had been inside of it were 
Maricanos. And there was actually, I believe, like a, a fine dust that was in the box as well. And what the police had figured out from that after they tested it, um, that actually turned out to be um, bone or dust from bone. So what they figured out that Miyazaki had done and what he later confessed to was that he actually had taken some of Mari's bone and ground it into dust and put that dust into the box alongside with the teeth that he had taken from her as well. So again, the police were able to identify those remains as belonging to Mari Kano. After they made this discovery, the police did release that information to the public. And once this information went public, once the announcement was made, Miyazaki actually wrote and sent a confession letter to the police in which he described Mari's body in a state of decomposition. I do have an excerpt of that letter that he wrote um, and translated to English. The letter read, Before I knew it, the child's corpse had gone rigid. I wanted to cross her hands over her breast, but they wouldn't budge. Pretty soon, the body gets red spots all over it. Big red spots, like the Hinamaru flag. After a while, the body is covered with stretch marks. It was so rigid before, but now it feels like it's full of water. And it smells. Oh, how it smells. Like nothing you've ever smelled in this whole wide world. Though Miyazaki sent this letter to the police, he would not actually be apprehended until July 23rd, 1989, when he would attempt to claim his fifth victim. On this day, Miyazaki, he spotted two sisters that were playing in a park in um, Hachioji, which is a city that is located in western Tokyo. Miyazaki had planned, what he wanted to do was, I guess, separate the two sisters. His MO was never to take more than one victim at a time, so he wanted to somehow separate the two sisters, and then he would take the younger sister and leave the older sister behind. Um, I'm not sure exactly how he did it. I couldn't find that in any of the sources, but he did manage to successfully separate the two sisters and get the younger sister into his vehicle where he then convinced her or forced her to strip her clothes off, and he proceeded again to photograph the young girl's naked body. Thankfully, the older sister, um, the two girls actually lived relatively close to where this park was, so the older sister, she had enough sense to go run back home, and immediately she alerted her father that a man had taken her younger sister. Um, the father then rushes to the park and he actually catches Miyazaki red-handed. So he finds the vehicle, he finds Miyazaki's vehicle, he rips the door open and Miyazaki is in the back seat with the younger sister pretty much attempting to get so close up to this girl's genitals that he is basically trying to shove the camera inside her. Um so of course the father beats the shit out of Miyazaki. He rips him off of his daughter. He starts kicking the shit out of him, tries to subdue him, but somehow, some way, Miyazaki is able to get away. So he gets away from the father and he just flees on foot. He books it the fuck out of there. Um, the father, of course, he calls the police right away to report the incident, and the police immediately get to the scene, and they see that the vehicle, that Miyazaki's vehicle, was still left there, of course, because, like I said, Miyazaki just ran away on foot. He wasn't taking no time to try to drive that car somewhere when he was getting the shit kicked out of him by this girl's father. So what the police assume 
what they correctly assumed is that the owner of the vehicle would come back for the car later. So they stake out the vehicle. They have officers having eyes on it for the entire rest of the day. And it was actually just a few hours later that Miyazaki returned to his vehicle. And that is when he was ambushed and arrested by the police. So after Miyazaki was arrested, the police actually conducted a search of his apartment, and this is what uncovered a huge amount of extremely disturbing evidence. If you guys remember, he took trophies and he took a lot of them. We know for sure that he had Marikano's hands and feet in his apartment, and he also had the dismembered body of Ayako, his fourth victim. Um... The evidence that they found specifically included over 5,000 videotapes, some of which were anime and slasher movies, but other were um, videos of Miyazaki abusing his victims' corpses. They also found photographs of his victims, as well as their clothing, the hands and feet of Mari Kano, and the dismembered, decomposing body of Ayako Nomoto. When Miyazaki was apprehended and the evidence was discovered, the Japanese authorities, they wasted no time at all putting Miyazaki on trial for his crimes. They pulled no punches. He was arrested. The evidence was found. And they're like, all right, we're putting this motherfucker on trial. Let's go. So Miyazaki's trial began on March 30th, 1990. During the trial, Miyazaki's defense, basically, um, was that he hadn't committed the murders, or it wasn't him who wanted to commit the murders. He claimed that he had an alter ego that he called the Rat Man, who he said forced him to kill. And he actually spent much of his time during the trial um, doodling pictures of the Rat Man in cartoon form. So... It's not bad enough that he commits these crimes, but then he has the audacity to go on and blame it on a fake cartoon alter ego called the Rat Man. Like, sure, buddy. Sure. Um, during the trial and after Miyazaki's crimes were discovered, uh, his father actually ended up disowning him, and he refused to pay for any sort of legal defense for his son. He said, nuh-uh, sicko, you're on your own. Um, so he disowns him, but sadly, the media around the case, the revelations of what his son had done was too much for Miyazaki's father to take, and his father actually ended up committing suicide in 1994. The trial dragged on for seven years, and it went so long mainly because it was focused on Miyazaki's mental state at the time of the murders. Um, so under Japanese law at the time, people of unsound mind are not subject to punishment, and the feeble-minded or, quote, feeble-minded are entitled to reduced sentences. Uh, Miyazaki's obsession with manga and anime was also touted as a possible reason for his altered mental state and for his crimes, but other enthusiasts of manga and anime, they were like, no way, there's no way that, you know, manga and anime would ever 
push somebody to commit crimes as heinous from these. They argued that there was no actual basis for these claims that were being made that the manga and anime obsession caused Miyazaki to commit these crimes and that there was no proof that manga and anime had ever turned Miyazaki into a killer. So this kind of reminded me of like what we see nowadays with people claiming that violent video games cause people to become violent. So that was a similar argument here again that Miyazaki with his obsession with anime and manga that is what caused him to become a killer of young girls. Um, Miyazaki, he had actually ended up being evaluated, his mental state evaluated, by three separate teams of psychiatrists, all of whom came to somewhat different determinations regarding Miyazaki's mental state at the time of the murders. So two teams determined him to be feeble-minded. One team concluded that he was schizophrenic, and the other concluded that he had multiple personality disorder. The third team found that although Miyazaki had a personality disorder, he was still capable of taking responsibility for his actions. Ultimately, and at the end of the seven-year trial, the Tokyo District Court did determine Miyazaki to have been aware of the magnitude and the consequences of his crimes, so he was fit to stand trial. So again, the psychiatrist did say that he could suffer from, you know, mental illness like schizophrenia or like multiple personality disorder. Um, but ultimately, the decision was made that he was of sound mind and could be punished for the crimes that he committed and held accountable for them. On April 14th, 1997, Miyazaki was found guilty for his crimes and he was actually sentenced to death. His sentence was appealed twice, but upheld by both the Tokyo High Court on June 28, 2001, and by the Supreme Court of Justice on January 17, 2006. And on June 17, 2008, Sutomo Miyazaki, the otaku killer, was executed by hanging. So, uh, that is the case of Sutomo Miyazaki. I usually am kind of on the fence when it comes to like the death penalty and, you know, when it's not really relevant, but when it's necessary. And there's so many, so many flaws in legal systems, you know, that have to be considered when thinking about sentencing people to death for the crimes they commit. But this one, I have no qualms about. Sutomo Miyazaki deserved the death penalty. And there was the whole qualm with the death penalty is the possibility or the qualm I have, I guess, with sentencing people to death is the possibility of sentencing an innocent person to death. Um, but Satoma Miyazaki was not an innocent person. There was no doubt, no doubt that he had committed these crimes. And he, you know, even though we try to say it was the rat man who caused him to murder these little girls, he, he full on admitted to doing it. And the evidence that was found in his apartment was, the trial at this point, it was basically just used to determine whether or not he was of sound mind when he committed the murders and whether or not he would be able to be punished for them. It was never a question of whether he did it because he confessed to it. The authorities knew that he did it. They just, again, had to determine if they could punish him for it. And thankfully, the Tokyo court was like, yeah, absolutely. He is of sound mind. He... Like, if you think about it, he he knew what he was doing was wrong. He had gone back, he had hidden the bodies of Mari and of Masami in the woods, in the, you know, um, remote location in the woods. So he knew what he was doing was wrong, right? He's trying to hide the bodies. And then with um, Erica and with Ayako, he 
you know, Erica was a bit of a, a unique situation. He did differ from his MO, you know, and the fact that he had dumped her body in the parking lot. But with Ayako, when he had even tried to um, do away with her body by just leaving the the dismembered pieces in those different areas around Tokyo, you know, he got antsy and he was worried that the parts of her body were going to be found and they were going to be traced back to him. If you have somebody who's not of sound mind and doesn't understand that what they're doing is wrong, they're A, not going to try to hide the body in the first place, and B, they're not going to be worried about having it traced back to them because they don't understand that what they've done was wrong. They don't have that sense about them to be anxious that their crime is going to be discovered and that they're going to be punished for it, right? You know, if, if you don't think you've done anything wrong, you're not worried about being discovered for doing something wrong. So I do think there was definitely something wrong with him. I don't think any sane person or any person in their right mind would commit the sort of crimes that Satoma Miyazaki did, but there is no doubt in my mind that he knew exactly what he was doing and he knew what he was doing was heinous and wrong and he deserved to hang for his crimes. And that is, you know, all I'm going to say about that. But I, I definitely think in this case that the death penalty was warranted. You know, while that's never going to bring back his victims, I, you know, hope it brought peace to their families that he was executed and that he paid for the the crimes that he committed um well if you guys have made it this far thank you so much for being here and going through this horrible very rough case with me i hope that you were you know, found this case to be interesting. You know, if you do want to look more into it, I will post um, the sources. I'll post a link in the Instagram to the Google document I have that has all the sources if you guys want to do a little bit more deep diving into this case on your own. Um, if you would like to see some photos from the case that I have gathered, again, I will post those on my Instagram account, which is at TSRH Podcast. Um, if you don't follow the Instagram and you would like to, please think about giving me a follow. Um, I usually post um, coming soon posts to let you guys know what case I'll be covering next. And then I do, like I said, post pictures relevant or from the case. I don't ever post anything like explicit. I don't post like gory crime scene photos. I would probably get banned from Instagram one and two. I just don't want to post something like that on a public forum. So it's all like safe for work photos that are um, relevant to the case. I'll usually post a photo of the the perpetrator if I can find it and then of the victims if they have them, you know, to keep their faces out there and keep them remembered. So if you're interested in following the Instagram, like I said, that's at TSRH podcast. Um, I also have an email at TSRH podcast at gmail.com. So so if you have any cases that you would like to cover, if you have any comments or, you know, anything like that, you can post them on the um, post on Instagram or you can shoot me an email. But again, I just wanted to thank you all for being here. Thank you all for listening and I will see you in the next one. Bye. Bye.